Hello and welcome to Army of Crime, a critical look at the world of comics and film. I am your host, Matt, and this is my co-host, Dustin. Well, hello, everyone. On this show, we're going to cast a pretty wide net. We're going to be looking at everything from Soviet propaganda to Japanese manga to contemporary superhero comics. Pretty much everything's going to go in the grinder. And it's going to come out of the grinder as a tasty meal for your ears. As far as I know, we are the web's only crossover podcast that looks equally at comic books and movies. That is our territory of the Internet that we have staked out. Yes, and I believe as of right now, that is completely uncharted territory. So for all those people who are wishing that someone would talk about comic books and movies at the same time, I think this is your only destination. Yes, you can find them separately, but can you find them together? Right. You can now. Up first, we are going to talk about the movie Justice League, which came out in 2017, is directed by Zack Snyder, and is obviously the adaptation of the DC Comics property and in their uh, universe of comic book characters and such. Uh, Matt, what did you think of the movie Justice League? I ultimately had a lot of mixed thoughts on it. I think that the movie is unfortunately timed that it came out after we've seen a lot of other superhero movies, if it had come out 10 years ago, it would have been really impressive. I think it's a lot of things that we've seen before. Yeah, I did not like it very much. Um, I don't think it's him kind of been on the record for a long time as not being a fan of the whole um, Zack Snyder aesthetic. And I think this is his least good looking film. I mean, normally the uh, one saving grace of Zack Snyder is that he has a great visual eye often. And I thought this film was frequently a bit fugly looking and the CGI of which there is a ton of doesn't look all that great surprisingly for a movie that I can only assume cost like a zillion dollars to make. It looks, the CGI looks cheap. So just to, I guess to talk about the story a little bit, it's like, I mean, I don't even know what there is to say about the story. They have them, these MacGuffins that they're trying to get. It's just called like a mother box that allows them to fight this guy named Steppenwolf who's trying to invade the Earth. That's really about all there is to it. I thought what there was of a story actually reminded me of an adaptation of a video game. Like there's these magic items that have to be collected. It felt kind of like you were watching the adaptation of like a 2D brawler. I could see that. I felt like this with the previous Zack Snyder DC movies too, and that the story felt very like uh, rushed and like slapdash. It really just felt like that they're just churning through plot just to like get this thing over with. Yeah, it's odd because it feels both unnecessarily complicated and very simplistic at the same time. Like there's a lot of plot points to check off, but ultimately right, at know. the end you look back and it doesn't really feel like a lot happened. Yeah. That's actually a good way to put it. Is it, it, it really is just like a MacGuffin chase with like a bad guy invading the planet, but yet there still seems like it's like somehow way too convoluted. Yeah, I don't really have, I feel like this movie is more or less a complete waste of time. The only thing that I would say is actually a redeeming factor of it is it has a an absurdly overqualified cast. Not even, I mean, you have the main heroes, right? You have Batman played by Ben Affleck. You have Wonder Woman played by Gal Gadot. You have The Flash played by Ezra Miller. Of course, Superman 
comes back to life to the surprise of no one, played by Henry Cavill. And those people are all right for the most part. I'm not really a Henry Cavill fan, so I think he's kind of a waste of time. But then you have these, uh, these like bit parts of like Amy Adams as Lois Lane, and she's in like two scenes. And you have Diane Lane as Superman's mom, and she's in like two scenes. And J.K. Simmons as Commissioner Gordon and Jeremy Irons as uh, Alfred. It's really, I guess, one of the um, possible benefits of making a uh, zillion-dollar film like this is that you can afford to, like, hire out amazing actors to record pointless dialogue in, like, one or two scenes. So I feel like if there is something that is a reason to recommend this film, it's just to uh, watch amazing group of actors talk around the story and this like dialogue that is rather painful to the ear for the most part yeah i really didn't have a problem with any of the actors um probably my two favorite set pieces in the movie was actually the opening scene with wonder woman in the i think it's a bank robbery or a terrorist attack in a bank and i thought that was actually a worthwhile scene so you actually start the movie on a little bit of a strong note. I mean, the payoff really isn't there, but I thought that was a good set piece. And actually, the fight where they're under a under Gotham Harbor, I believe, that was an okay set piece. Um, it wasn't just like a knockdown brawl. They're kind of in this tunnel. Uh, Batman has a like a robot with machine guns on it <laughs> or something. Yeah. So, um, so, so I, I think don't think the it beginning was... of the film isn't it actually Batman's like sitting on a rooftop. Oh, yes, you're right. The actual beginning. Right. So that's not the opening scene. I feel like that scene immediately put me on edge because, I mean, it's like two people standing on a roof having a conversation and it looks like some kind of like video game cutscene because it has this really like obvious like CGI going on and immediately like hitting the ground running with getting their uh, plot up to speed. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that scene. No, the yeah. So the scene, I, I think those were the two set pieces I had ended up with a positive impression of was the Wonder Woman one, and then the actual fight under Gotham Harbor I thought was kind of cool. But if you look at the final battle, which is, I believe, takes place literally in the middle of nowhere. I think they're in, in, in Siberia? Yeah, they're in, like, Russia or the Caucasus, or but it's, like, literally in the middle of nowhere, basically. It's, like, a big empty area, which seems like a very odd choice to pick for, like, a final battle. Well, I guess in the previous, maybe he took the uh, they took the criticisms of all the uh, wanton destruction, city destruction to heart. So they instead will do the exact opposite and have them fight in a giant empty field somewhere. Yeah, talking about Man of Steel as a comparison, one of the positives I thought of that movie, and I don't know if I could say which one I thought was better or worse, really, but I remember actually thinking the fight scenes were at least kind of entertaining. There was a level of, you know, professionalism to the the fight between Superman and the other Kryptonians. I don't even think you get that here, really. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, the novelty of those fight scenes is you had these people, like, coming at each other with, like, super speed. And I know I saw people even comparing it to, like, a really big-budget version of, like, Dragon Ball Z, which I think is kind of apt. But for the most part, I um, I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's... There's a little of that, but we've seen it before. But I felt like most of the action sequences in this film, like especially one one scene that I felt, there's a part where Steppenwolf, who's the bad guy, if you know your um, DC Comics New Gods characters, he's like a lieutenant of Darkseid, who I believe they teased in Batman vs. Superman as like the big bad of the the series, I guess. In, in Justice League, 
Steppenwolf invades the Amazon's island, Themyscira. And there's like an extended fight scene that again happens like in a giant blank plane somewhere where he's like fighting all these Amazons. And you do get a cameo from Wonder Woman of the Wonder Woman's mom. But again, it, yeah, it just felt like pointless digital bullet that had no weight and didn't really feel like meaningful in any way. And again, yeah, it's taking place in like a giant empty field and it's all just like these digital figures tumbling around each other, I guess. I feel like there's more you could say about Steppenwolf, and it's probably not great. I mean, he's kind of C-list character, even by the standards of the New Gods, who are sort of lesser-known characters to begin with. The first time you see Steppenwolf in a comic book, he's like drinking a giant thing of meat out of a horn, and he has a giant mustache. Which is to say that in the comic book, he actually at least like looks kind of cool, whereas in the movie... He looks like some digital character who's made out of, like, mashed potatoes or something. It looks very, very, very generic. Like, there's really no character design there. Yeah, it, I'm sort of baffled as to why they... It, it seems like they... It's almost like a level of self-parody as far as, like, superhero movies having forgettable characters. They just didn't seem to put a lot of effort into it. It really like, does seem like... Like, who we're going to use and what they're going to look like. Yeah, he made me think... Going back to, I keep thinking of this comparison, and I made a like a video game adaptation because he really looks like the end level boss for like a Super Nintendo yeah, game. Yeah, he does. He'd be like the end level boss of like the second or third stage, not even the final boss of a game, but like some mid level boss or something that you would beat up and then move on and never think about again. I think that's probably my biggest complaint on some level about this movie is the fact that they spent this entire amount of money. You have this amazing cast. And for whatever reason, the the villain, which, you know, like you mentioned, there's a lot of other problems, certainly. If you had used Darkseid to some kind of potential, you could have at least come up with something noteworthy. Even if you're like, okay, we want to save Darkseid for a different story, there's still, like, you know, to look at the New Gods villains, you still have, like, Calabac or Mantis or, like, Dasad. There are still... Or the like, female theories. Yeah, or the female Furies. Like, even if you were like, we're going to save Darkseid for a different story, there are still other people you could pick who are more interesting than Steppenwolf, who doesn't really have much personality to speak of. Like, he is just like a generic bad guy, and he looks at an exit in the film. I think overall we're both in agreement, right, that this movie sucks? Yeah, I don't want to throw... It's weird because, as if you were to tell me as, like, a teenager that there would be, like, a $300 million Justice League film... You know, like that would have been extremely exciting, but now we've gotten to the point with these superhero movies where it's like I didn't even bother to see this in the theaters and I caught up with it on HBO Go. For my money, other than, like I said, the watching some of these like really talented actors try to make something of this, I felt like it was more or less a complete uh, waste. It's sort of a bizarre response to Avengers because ostensibly what we're watching is Warner Brothers trying to make their own version of the Avengers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, and and it's, like, just... it's like a, a get-the-team-together kind of thing. But, yeah, the story just feels like it very much has, like, a, well, let's get this over with vibe to it. There's, like, a screenwriting 101 kind of quality to it where I, I, would ima I wouldn't be surprised to learn that they started production before they were even finished writing the script kind of a thing. Yeah, I know Zack Snyder left the film during post-production, and they brought in Joss Whedon to supervise post-production and do reshoots. So yeah, it would not be surprising at all to know that 
the story such as it is or what as it came out was assembled haphazardly over many different writing sessions and shooting and like reshooting and rewriting. But even given Zack Snyder's previous films, I'm not going to be one of the people by any means that believes there's a secret genius version hidden somewhere. Oh, yeah, if we want to talk about this, but there are apparently um, lots of uh, hardcore, I guess, Zack Snyder fans who believe that there's like some kind of early version of this film that exists somewhere at Warner Brothers that they're like sitting on. Which is dumb and makes no sense. And I feel like the story problems in this movie are pretty similar to the story problems we have in others in X Snyder films like Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman. Yeah, though, you know, it's weird because I actually do feel like that. I don't know if this is, again, like I was saying, a response to criticism or just where they were always intending on going with this. But it seems like the story does get over the weird being a superhero is bad message of the earlier films, which I do kind of respect that somehow they were able to convince Warner Brothers to like let them make these hundreds of million dollar films that are all about how superheroes are terrible and how maybe no one should ever help anyone. But for whatever reason, they have gotten past that now. So it's much more of like the we need to save the world thing, which which I guess would just go to show that if you were, you know, if you were like a hardcore Zack Snyder fan, is that I'm not sure that like a different cut of the film would like make it more Zack Snyder-y. That just seems to be like what they decided to do with this one. I mean, it doesn't, you know, there are people who are like, Man of Steel is like not my version of Superman or whatever, which I think is kind of silly because it's like, you know, who cares if it's the correct version of the character? It's not like we own stock in Warner Brothers and we're like wanting to make sure that they don't disrespect the their IP or whatever, but... Well, there's a million versions of every character. Yeah, that's true. So it's, it's silly to talk about, like, which one is the correct one. Anyway, yeah, so the point of all that is, is that, yeah, there are some people who think that there's, like, a secret good version of this movie that Warner Brothers is hiding from the world, which is dumb, because the problems with this film are don't feel like are something that would have been solved by, like, an earlier cut. Maybe, like, if they would have thrown the script in the trash and wrote a different one from the word go. But so, Justice League, any uh, final thoughts on this movie? Does it make you want to watch more Warner Brothers superhero films? It does not. I believe we have Aquaman. I didn't even mention Aquaman, but he's in here, too. Yeah, I actually... I really didn't mind Jason Jason Momoa, I believe. Yeah. I mean, I he's he not, did an... Yeah, he's fine. I I feel like he's kind of saddled with having to be the guy who drops bad one-liners. But he's, he's basically he's, he's fine Wolverine. He's the Wolverine <laughs> character. I guess, yeah. But like it's not really none of the actors' fault cuz they're all like standing against a green dro- backdrop talking to tennis balls doing the best that they can. Yeah, I, um, you know, like I said, I didn't watch this in theaters. I watched it on HBO Go. And other than maybe, like, Wonder Woman 2, I don't feel like I would have any interest in watching any more of these things. The only character I thought might be interesting on their own was actually Cyborg, who is the also the only character that justifiably has some kind of pathos going on. Yeah. Is there, I assume there's a Cyborg movie in the works? I don't know, and... Based on what we've seen so far from Warner Brothers, I don't know if I would be sold on it without a lot more information, but I think Cyborg could potentially be an interesting character on his own based on what we saw in this movie, which wasn't a whole lot. I don't know if I would bother seeing Aquaman based on what we saw in here, although, like I said, it's not really a complaint against the actor. Yeah, it's not their fault. Yeah, overall, I would say it really doesn't leave you with much. Like I said, there's a couple positives 
it just kind of is a big wasted opportunity. Like I said, I think if this had come out, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, you could have coasted just on some of the spectacle. But it's been done so much better so many other ways. It's hard to really come up with much when you're done watching it. I would say probably just DC comic fan completists. We're going to talk about a comic series called The First Kingdom. Let me read you some of the cover blurbs off of this. One of the most awesome undertakings in modern comic book history by Will Eisner. The avid buyers of Jack's monumental saga, numerous and loyal, can attest to the eloquence and mesmerizing sweep of characters and situations. That is by Jack Kirby. By Jerry Siegel, co-creator of Superman, we have like seeing glimpses of a dream world depicted by an artist with remarkable by creative Jim vision. Durenko, an atomic reactor overloading to a dangerous intensity, a masterpiece. Those are all some of the best cover blurbs I think you could get from some of the biggest names in comics history. Uh, the First Kingdom is a comic series published over long form starting in the late 70s so it's very independent very underground i will readily admit that i'd never heard of it whatsoever until it was reprinted in hardcover uh for the purposes of this show we're just looking at first kingdom volume one really just for brevity's sake which collects as i recall the first six issues of the series which i believe was ultimately finished as a 24 issue series Right. So we're looking at it's uh, the reprint is in hardcover, but the series is all black and white and it is very much, let's say, non. I think the word I'm looking for would be non-commercial, non. Uh, Trying to search for a word other than mainstream, but. It's very, it's, yeah, it was. Let's say um, I believe you would call it like an underground comic. Yes, it's very much an underground comic, black and white. Um, it's hard to even begin where to describe it. I found myself, I've actually read the entire series, and I reread it to review it on this show. And I think The First Kingdom is tremendous, but it's it's hard for me to even wrap around where to even begin. Is there anything you want to jump in with? So I um, have not read the whole series, so I just read the first volume because I knew that we were going to talk about it. And I honestly found it a bit uh, arduous to get through. I um, So let me ask you this. Do you feel like that this engaged you dramatically, emotionally? Did you resonate with the story or with the characters on any kind of level because I did not at all and I found it uh, kind of a chore to read. I would say that I did. It is dense. It is a very dense series. So there's pages where you're basically reading prose with illustrations. There's a lot of text on some of these pages. It is a bit, it, it's a, uh, it's a bit of a steep climb to get into it. It really does not hold your hand. It tosses you into this fantasy world. There's all sorts of jargon that they don't explain to you. 
and you literally start with, I think, cavemen, like, running around fighting with spears. So the the author really doesn't do you any favors to get into this. So I will admit, when I did first read it, it does take a bit to get into. It It, it is a bit of a climb to get into it. Did uh, you get not, into it before you finished the first volume? I was into it by the time I finished the first volume. So I went and found, I read the first volume, and then I went and found the other ones once I had finished it. It does take a little while to get going. Uh, the word epic could probably be used to describe it. The word epic is probably overused to describe things, but I think it really fits here. We're looking at a story where the main character isn't even born until I think about halfway through this. So we're looking at a multi-generational storyline uh, involving separate kingdoms over the an entire planet as well as things going on in outer space. Uh, it's got post-apocalyptic angles. It's a fantasy story. Uh, it's science fiction. It actually falls into, I feel like you could describe it with the Edgar Rice Burroughs sort of planetary romance. Uh, there's some kind of John Carter, Warlord of Mars vibe. There's almost a Conan the Barbarian aesthetic to it uh, with the everyone running around muscly and shirtless. And there's a, there's a lot of nudity as well. There's, yeah, there's, a, lot, there's uh, a lot going on. It made me wonder if this whole series started just because uh, the artist Jack Katz, who was apparently um, worked in the, he was not someone whose work I was extremely familiar with, but he worked in the golden age of comics. And then he kind of came back in the 70s to do this sort of personal project. And it made me wonder while reading it if maybe this whole thing just started out because he like really hates drawing clothes, uh, because all the characters are basically naked all the time. I mean they have like loincloths on, but even like the children characters are drawn as like muscled, sexy, ch naked children. Um, it's kind of, to be honest, I found, um, I mean that aspect of it I think ties into. One of my criticisms with the art is that all the characters look the same. And with the fact that there's like a zillion characters, I mean, it has like, it's like reading the Bible with the number of characters in it. And they all look exactly the same with the same like sexy, naked, muscled body that uh, it's almost impossible to like keep them apart. I guess I wouldn't disagree with that so much. I. I, the cast of characters, once you figure out who everybody is, I mean, I feel like it works. You're dealing with the characters in two kingdoms on Earth as well as a space crew. There's a pantheon of gods. So there is a lot of characters. I feel like you do eventually get the rhythm of who is who. Yeah, the, the aesthetic, I mean, you kind of have to take it or leave it. Oh, I, I left it. No worries there. You left it? It is unusual. I'm not sure... I really can't muster like a defense for it. I guess it's like I said, it's it's almost a Conan the Barbarian aesthetic, but more so. Uh, that also is, brings me back to like the Edgar Rice Burroughs thing when you see the Princess of Mars, Warlord of Mars. You know the kind of images you see on those covers. It kind of reminds me of that too. I mean, comparing it to cover images, I think is apt because. Even though there are like I, I would say fairly regular like action sequences, but they're all drawn in a very like stiff, very like cover image, splash image, poster 
image kind of uh, style where there's not, I never felt like any kind of like tension or any kind of excitement in any of the action sequences. And part of that is because, you know, I didn't really care about any of the characters, but also I, just, I don't feel like with the, the drawing, his style, and with the page design, I don't think he ever really gives you like a successful action sequence on the page. Like if you read a good Conan the Barbarian comic, like maybe one of the black and white ones that were drawn by John Buscema, like he can actually deliver to you both through the page design and through the actual pencil work, uh, you know, an exciting action sequence. And I never, I personally like never got that from the First Kingdom. In fact, sometimes I found the art, I mean, the art is extremely detailed, which I'm not always a fan of highly detailed art styles in comics. And here I found it to be sort of really like dry and almost kind of cluttered on some pages. Um, it, it always felt like every panel was drawn to like be like a poster and not to be you know, cartooning to tell a story. I will grant you it is very idiosyncratic. He seems to be working off of the, entirely off of his own designs. I mean, there's really no attempt to do something the way you would expect it to be, I guess, which isn't necessarily a recommendation in and of itself, but it, it just seems to be he's entirely, he's a drummer beating to his own drum. I don't know all of the details of his life story or whatever. I really can't explain the style of it. It is it is idiosyncratic. It is not like... Yeah, when I mentioned Conan the Barbarian, I'm really just talking about the aesthetic. And I guess I liked the art. I feel like there's a lot of really amazing images. I mean, I the style, to me, like, I definitely could think of people I could compare it to. Like, it recalls, like, maybe, like, Flash Gordon art by, like, an Alex Raymond or an Al Williamson or even like a Hal Foster sort of like Vistas. It's kind of more in that vein than in um, typical like comic book art. But I think that those kind of artists, for whatever reason, I would say that they work better. But so, I mean, I don't think that he's like, this isn't like someone who's like out there like doing something that nobody else did before or since. He's definitely working you know, picking up threads from other people in terms of, like, detailed, you know, fantasy sci-fi art. That's true. And it's interesting you mentioned Hal Foster. If you read the interview that comes with the book, I don't know if you did, but he mentions Hal Foster as basically his model or his, his ideal, like okay. Hal Foster and Prince Valiant. And I believe the other one he mentions is the Tarzan strips as being, like, the two... Uh, the two like models or the two like the things that he thinks are the best. That's an interview with the with Jack Katz. I believe that is in the first volume. Yeah, the interview with Jack Katz, and I think he cites those two things as the as sort of his main inspiration or his main examples of things done very well. I would. I mean, yeah, it's definitely you can tell that from from looking at it. But I feel like it strikes me as one of the a situation where someone who worked in like mainstream corporate entertainment then gets a chance to sort of like do their own thing without the you know constraints of like marketability so they dig deep and deliver this okay. so we're on 
a sharp disagreement over the stylistic elements of it. I think that's fair to say. I I, I get what you're saying about the art and the, the aesthetic, the design. It kind of grew on me. It is hard to get into. You have to kind of dedicate yourself because if you just read the first couple pages, it's it's not very accessible. But I did feel like it grew in me. I like the tone that it kind of builds. There's this epic story. It almost reminded me of like Jack Kirby in the Fourth World, where you have this whole pantheon of gods that are interacting with humans. I mean, it makes me think of Greek mythology, um, things like uh, Star Wars, like epic sci-fi. I just feel like there's a lot going on thematically, and it reminds me of. I think it's very much a product of the Cold War because there's this, you know, there's the dueling kingdoms and there's the question of whether humanity can successfully build something without also destroying themselves. It makes me think of there's a quote from, I believe, the H.G. Wells novel Food of the Gods, where he says, if humanity can find a way to not destroy itself, its destiny is in the stars. Because the whole thing is the idea, I think the question, the central question seems to be, can is humanity trapped in like these cyclical patterns or can it break out and the cyclical pattern seems to lead to total destruction and then like rebuilding right so those are the parts that i found interesting um and i won't go into things in the other volumes i will say the first volume had me interested enough that i read the other ones it goes into more detail on all kinds of things i mean you're getting this epic story where there's these individuals fighting over their kingdoms in sort of a small scale and there's a larger scale story with the gods um, and then there's the science fiction angle where they're in space and it very much has the golden age. You know, they're wearing the bubble helmets and the whole thing. And no pants. Right. In space. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Jack Kirby's The New Gods, because I feel like one of the reasons why The New Gods is maybe so much more successful than this is because have, uh, having to work for DC Comics, Jack Kirby was sort of forced to, you know, fit his story into the uh, template of, like, superhero action comics. And I think maybe those, that constraint, you know, forced it to deliver something that had consistent, like, dramatic beats and, like, uh, a story structure that you could, that would keep you involved. Whereas I often felt like this was just, like, someone explaining to me in great painstaking detail the background of his like fantasy universe that he invented yeah there's something to be said for since i made that comparison to the momentum of the of the new gods there's a lot of energy there i think the the god figures in this are a little more interesting because they're less i mean not that they're more interesting than the fourth world but one of the interesting things about them is they are more amoral or sort of neutral morally which uh, makes me think of Greek mythology, where the god characters can be sort of capricious. I I get what you're saying with the story beats and everything. It it is idiosyncratic. I don't know. I can't justify it. I don't. There are times where he actually sets up situations and then resolves them in the captions instead of showing you the results. And there are times where characters will speak, and he just tells you what they say in the caption instead of giving them word balloons. I don't know why that is. It's a stylistic choice. I can't really explain it. There are also times where he'll like repeat information in narr uh, narration boxes that's in dialogue. Like it has way too much narration. It, it like feels like every box on every panel is just like explaining what's happening rather than like showing you. It's very much like a tell 
instead of a show sort of situation. I wondered while reading it if it was him trying to condense something that was much longer in some kind of initial first draft. Because in theory, if you were to stretch it all out and get rid of the narration, you could tell the same story. It would actually probably be even longer. And I don't know if this is him attempting to give you like the shortened version just so it can be finished. That's, that's just a working thought. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. We'll say that I am definitely not planning on reading the other volumes. I, I, if we weren't, if I knew we weren't going to talk about it, I would not have finished this one. I felt like it was sort of a, a boondoggle. I don't disagree with what you're saying. The style of it, the format, the structure is very idiosyncratic. It is, it is dense. There is a lot of narration. It is not a fast-moving story with a lot of momentum. It's almost like reading a historical text of some faraway planet. But I think thematically, once it finds its feet, it gets very interesting. The question of cyclical history of humanity uh, acting out these patterns, the interplay between these god figures, the science fiction elements, the fantasy elements, the post-apocalyptic elements. I feel like it works. It's probably not for everyone, as we've just learned. I feel like it works. I feel like it's justified. I read it. By the time I got into the second and third volumes, I was thinking of whether this was one of the best comic things I'd ever read. Wow, so you liked it that much? I did, but I don't feel like, I don't want to say what happened. I don't, by the time I was done reading it, I guess I had moved on from that. But there was, a, there was a period there where once all the elements start to click, all of the casts of characters start to interact, where I feel like it was just firing on all cylinders and it was really very engaging. Again, and that sort of, you're reading mythology, you're reading history of a fictional world with these, these ideas of cyclical history patterns, um, whether humans can, you know, break out of those patterns. This very much you could see the Cold War idea of, you know, nuclear Armageddon destruction hanging over us. I feel like it worked. It is dense. It's probably not for everyone. For recommendations this week, I'm just going to go ahead and recommend The First Kingdom. At least volumes one through four were made together, and then five and six made later. I think First Kingdom volume one through four, I think it's worth reading. There's a lot going on. That's my recommendation, First Kingdom volume one through four. I'm going to recommend a movie that is an adaptation of Greek mythology. It's a film that um, might be one of those things that I'm the only person in the world who enjoys it. But it is the film Immortals from 2011. It's a Tarsan Singh film starring Henry Cavill and Frida Pinto and Mickey Rourke. Henry Cavill plays Theseus, um, and it kind of follows, it has all of the Greek gods in it. Zeus, Athena, Poseidon are all in it. And it has these really interesting kind of spiky fantasy designs for all of the characters. And it has really sort of unique uh, action sequences involving the gods where it's like the gods are moving at like in like fast motion, like hitting, like fighting people and just like showing off like how powerful they are. And Mickey Rourke plays is the villain is King Hyperion. Um, and he has this really like interesting and bizarre costume. It has the Minotaur in it. it it's a really kind of like bizarre interpretation of Greek mythology. That's really uh, interesting visually. Um, I'm not a huge fan of 
like Henry Cavill's the lead character, and I we talked about him when talking about Justice League. I don't really think he's much of an actor, so I wouldn't recommend it for him. But it's an adaptation of the you know loose adaptation of the Greek myths of Theseus and the Minotaur, and it's amazing to look at. It's really fascinating visually, and it has a lot of really striking choices and some striking action sequences. And it was a film that kind of came and went that not a lot of people saw, but I would recommend it if you are into mythology. That's our episode for today. You can find more information about the things we talked about on our website, armyofcrime.com. You can find us on Twitter and yell at us if you want. Uh, Matt is on Twitter at armyofcrime, and I'm on Twitter at Dustin44444. Yes, it's a stupid handle, I know. I think that's all we have. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Stay alive out there. Should I, should I say something now?